So we do begin this evening our series in Ephesians, and Ephesians is at times going to feel somewhat different to Matthew's gospel in the morning, partly because they're two different genres. Matthew's gospel is narrative, and Ephesians is an epistle. It's more didactic in nature, at least more straightforwardly didactic, and it will feel different. There are occasionally different rules of interpretation as well. When you read a narrative text, there are times when the rules of interpretation will differ slightly from when you read an epistle, but there are always foundational rules that remain the same. Both are God's word, and there are some foundational rules that apply to both books and both genres. And in the same way that we began Matthew by asking possibly the most important question we could ask prior to entering into the book proper, we have to ask the same question of the book of Ephesians. The question we asked of Matthew is, why did he write? Why did Matthew write this gospel? It's so critically important to establish that before you start reading because it will set you up for a correct reading of the text. In the same way, we have to ask, why did Paul write this letter to the Ephesians? What prompted him to write to them? What were the circumstances that gave rise to the letter that we have in our Bibles to the church in Ephesus? Now, with Matthew's Gospel, we had a title We had verse 1 of the gospel, which functioned as Matthew's title, and it gave us an awful lot. It highlighted for us salient themes that will permeate all the way through Matthew's gospel. In Ephesians, we don't have such a title. Paul just opens with initial salutations, a a benediction of sorts, a welcome, a greeting. It's not going to perform the same function as Matthew's title did. So how then might we answer the question of purpose? Why did Paul write? Well, here we're greatly helped by the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a wonderful narrative that often sheds light on the New Testament epistles. The book of Acts charts the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in the middle section in particular, chapters 12 through 20, we are tracing Paul's missionary journeys, and many of the churches to whom letters were written subsequently are named in those chapters. And it's often the case, not always, but often we can learn something of the situation in that particular city that then sheds light on the epistle later on in the New Testament. And Ephesians is one such letter, one such city. There's actually quite a lot in the book of Acts written about the church in Ephesus because Paul had a relatively long ministry with them relatively. He was with the Ephesians, we think, for around about three years. Other places, he didn't get to stay as long. He was driven out. The Holy Spirit moved him on. Some churches, he was with seemingly for a matter of months. 
But with the Ephesians, he enjoyed a relatively long ministry, about three years he stayed with them. And so as Luke records the birth of the church, the progress of the gospel, there's actually a lot about Ephesus in the book of Acts. And honestly, we could spend maybe the next few months in Acts preparing to read Ephesians. But in order to get to the letter, sooner rather than later, I want to spend just one week, this week, reading from Acts in order to try and understand what were the circumstances that gave rise to the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And I've narrowed down our text to to 19.21 through 41, but I'll be drawing from other passages as well. And the intention this evening is by no means to work through and preach an expository message from every single verse in this text. That's not my intention, but rather to make some observations. Some observations about what was going on in Ephesus so as to set us up for a good reading of the letter. But as is always the case, the observations that we will make have implications for us here this evening. And I trust that the Lord will make plain to us not only what are the major concerns of Paul as he writes to the Ephesians, but what he would have us do in response. So, the first observation concerning Paul's ministry in Ephesus is that the Ephesians were well taught. The Ephesians were well taught. If we back up a little bit prior to the passage I read to you, verse 8 of chapter 19... We read that Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It may be that in your Bible, around about verse 9, you have a footnote. And the footnote might say something to the extent of some manuscripts include from the fifth hour to the tenth, which is 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. You might have that footnote in your Bible. It's not in mine, but I know it's in many. We refer to those kind of footnotes as a textual variant. doesn't matter if you forget the name. A textual variant. As Luke recorded the Acts narrative, it was then passed on to many scribes. And scribes would copy out Luke's narrative, in order to distribute it throughout all of the known world. That's how the Bible was promulgated. Many, many scribes copying Luke's narrative, and it gets sent out for people to read. And we don't have Luke's original manuscript today, but we do have many, many of those copies. And so one thing that biblical scholars do is they compare the copies, They compare the copies in part to answer the question, what did Luke originally write? And occasionally, very occasionally, there is some variance between the copies we have. 
And so here, in chapter 19 of Acts, we have one such variant. In some manuscripts, we have that additional comment as part of the text. In other manuscripts, it's not there. So the question becomes, did Luke actually write that comment about from the 5th hour to the 10th? In this case, most likely he didn't. That's okay, and, and the, the Bible editors have made that decision and indicated that decision to you by relegating it to a, to a footnote. So it's probably not part of the original inspired text. But here's an important thing to note as you consider these textual variants. As scribes copied out Luke's original manuscript in order to distribute it, They were not trying to deceive. They weren't trying to throw anyone off the scent so that we might arrive at a different interpretation to that which Luke originally intended. Most likely, that comment was added by a scribe by way of explanation. What probably happened is that the scribe was trying to be helpful He was trying to tell us more about the manner of Paul's teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. So he takes it upon himself to say from the fifth hour to the tenth, that is eleven till four. I don't know that it was part of the inspired text, but the point is I don't think that it was altogether false. Most likely it reflects something, if not the actual nature of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Most likely, the scribe is telling us what happened on a daily basis. So we can benefit from it, even though it wasn't part of the original text. The point is, the Ephesians were incredibly well taught. In the Lord's providence, this church, this group of believers, were able to come together on a daily basis in this hall of Tyrannus, and for hours, Paul would teach them. He would teach them issues of the Bible, the Old Testament. He would teach them issues of theology. Can you imagine being in Paul's class? We can't call it a Sunday school class because it was every single day. What do we study today, Paul? Today we're going to talk about the gospel. Today we're going to talk about the church. Today we're going to talk about the nature of sin. Today our lesson is all about the nature of God. Today, I'm going to walk you through Genesis. Can you imagine how well taught these Christians would have been after three years of this? Why do I labor this point? Because Ephesians is most likely a reflection of Paul's teaching to them. The letter to the Ephesians is not written as a response to a problem. As we survey all of the letters in the New Testament, many of them are written as a response. There's an issue in this church, and so one of the apostles has to respond to it. In 1 John, there's a a problem. The, The gospel has been distorted. And so John writes in response so as to remedy their their misleading. In Galatians, there's an issue, there's a problem, a misunderstanding of salvation by grace alone, and so Paul writes to correct the issue. But not with Ephesians. If you were to read through Ephesians, all six chapters from beginning to end, there is no hint of an issue. Most likely, 
Scholars agree that Ephesians seems to be written merely as a synthesis, as a summary of the teaching that Paul had given to the Ephesians for nearly three years in Ephesus. That means Ephesians is a wonderfully rich theological treatise. I think Ephesians often gets overlooked in this respect. We shine the spotlight on Romans. Within the economy of New Testament theology, Romans gets the limelight, most probably because of its length. It's a wonderful, sustained exposition of the gospel. But don't overlook Ephesians. It's a tremendously rich theological treatise, probably summarizing exactly what Paul had taught these saints. It reminds me of a, a challenge that many folks do back home in the UK called the, the Three Peaks Challenge. The Three Peaks Challenge is the challenge to climb the three highest mountains in the UK within 24 hours. And that includes traveling time between the mountains. So you have Ben Nevis in Scotland. That's the highest mountain in the UK. You have a mountain called Scarfell Pike in the Peak District in England. And then you have a mountain called Snowdon in Wales. And the challenge is to, to get up to the top of all of them and traveling time within a 24-hour window. So you really have to go for it. I did the challenge when I was much younger, and um, we started off about 6 a.m. in the morning. And we, we started in Scotland, going up Ben Nevis. And I was really excited to go up Ben Nevis is the highest mountain in all of the UK. And when we got to the top, it was great, this feeling of elation, and you're now at the highest point in the UK. Visibility was down to just a few feet. So there were no views, and it was freezing up there. It was snowing, and, and the clock's ticking, so we, we took a few photos on the, the clicky camera that we had back then, and then we just got off the mountain. Fast forward about 18 hours. We climbed Scarfell Pike during the night, didn't see a thing, but we did it. And then you get to Snowdon. And we start Snowdon really early. And as we're climbing Snowdon, people make fun of Snowdon because it's so small compared to Ben Nevis. As we're climbing Snowdon, the sun rises and it breaks over the mountain range. And the whole valley is, is floodlit with sunlight. And the sky was just blue that day, not a cloud to be seen. And all around Snowdon, there are lakes, and they were just glistening in the sunlight. Now, Ben Nevis was great, but the views that I saw from Snowdon that day were some of the most fantastic that I've ever seen. That's the letter to the Ephesians. Don't overlook Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, the implications are this. That's the observation. Ephesians is a wonderfully rich letter that could not be overlooked because of how much theology it gives us verse by verse by verse. The implication for us is that we would do everything we can to get this letter inside of us. 
As we begin our study in this letter and are here, Lord willing, for many years, working through these six chapters, we do everything we can to get Ephesians into our blood. Read Ephesians on a weekly basis. It's six chapters long. I think it would probably take you maybe 30 or 40 minutes max. Why not commit to opening up Paul's letter to the Ephesians weekly and taking it in afresh? Memorize Ephesians. You could. You could get this into your brain memorized. And then it starts to trickle down into your heart. Write out the letter to the Ephesians. Get some paper. It's incredible what happens when you stop reading only and you actually start to produce. When you take it in and reproduce it on paper, you will see things you have never seen before. In a few weeks, our bookshop just across the way in the church offices will be full of resources on Ephesians. They have a list to order. There will be many books there to help you. Go in and buy something. Be helped by somebody who has thought long and hard about Paul's letter to the Ephesians and study it. Study it for all your worth because this letter is worth getting inside of you. That's the first observation and implication for us. The second is that the Ephesians knew the triumph of the gospel. The Ephesians knew the triumph of the gospel. When you read through the book of Acts, there are two primary strains that seek to hinder the advancement of the gospel, two primary forces within the book of Acts that seek to hold back the advancement of the ministry. One is the Jews... And the other is what we might call the occult, dark practices, practices that look much like a cult might today. And wherever you are in the book of Acts, one question that it's worth asking is what is the primary hindrance, what is the primary force acting against the gospel in this place? It differs from place to place. In Ephesus, it was not primarily the Jews. It was not primarily the Jews. The main force that was seeking to stop the advancement of the gospel in Ephesus was the occult. If we back up just a little bit again, looking at verses 11 through to 20, we read this curious incident about the sons of Sceva. Now, they are listed in verse 14 as Jewish high priests, but they don't seem to be practicing much in accordance with the Torah. Later on, in that same paragraph, we read in verse 18, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. They're not repenting of practices in accordance with the Old Testament law. Verse 19, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. He counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The primary force of opposition to Paul's ministry in Ephesus was the occult. And so one thing that you find as a theme in Ephesians 
is what I refer to as the cosmic triumph of the gospel. The cosmic triumph of the gospel. It is one thing to tell a Jew that their Savior has come. It is altogether a different thing to tell someone entrenched in the occult that they need to leave everything behind and turn 180 towards Christ. And that is what many of the Ephesian church had done. They'd left behind dark magic arts. Who knows what that looked like on a day-to-day basis? Presumably, some of their habits and ways of thinking were very much still entrenched. And so one of the points of emphasis you see as you read through Ephesians is the cosmic triumph of the gospel. Read through Ephesians this week and make a note of how often Paul's language is incredibly extensive. As Paul pitches the gospel, as he prays for the believers, as he talks about everyday doctrinal issues, he's always doing so in such a way so as to expand our understanding of them and the implication of Christ's victory on the cross. Paul does not allow anyone in the church in Ephesus to have a small gospel that extends merely to the salvation and the forgiveness of sins. This is often how we think about the gospel. And don't misunderstand me, it's not wrong. The gospel certainly is the forgiveness of sins. But often in the me-centered culture in which we live, this individualistic age, the extent to which we think of the gospel is that my sins are forgiven and that's it. What Paul does in Ephesians is he stretches our understanding of the victory that Christ achieved at the cross. What he does is he puts your salvation in perspective. You are saved and made right before a holy God. But the whole universe is feeling the implications of Christ's death on the cross. The galaxies and the stars feel the implications of Christ's death on the cross. And what we need to do as believers is orient ourselves to that gospel. To refuse to have a small gospel that centers on me, myself, and I. That is not the gospel that Paul preaches in Ephesians. What he does is he preaches the cosmic triumph of the gospel. And the implication would simply be that you would meditate on such truths. That you would pray that God would expand your understanding of the gospel. That your understanding of the gospel would stretch as far and as wide as the Lord would permit. So that he would be more glorified in your life. The third implication, or observation, excuse me, is that the Ephesians understood the centrality of the church. The Ephesians understood the centrality of the church. Moving on now to the passage that I read you, we read about this riot in Ephesus. There is a riot that is started by a man named Demetrius, and he is concerned because his business is being taken away. The occult was the primary force seeking to hinder the gospel in Ephesus, and central to cultish practices was the Artemis Temple. 
the occult was the primary force seeking to hinder the advancement of the gospel in Ephesus, central to all of the various cults in Ephesus was the Artemis Temple. That was the main force. It's listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this huge temple that hundreds if not thousands would be going to each and every day, and it's in Ephesus. And just like we have today around any tourist attraction or significant landmark, there were men that would sell things outside the Artemis Temple. If you go to Big Ben today in London, if you go to Buckingham Palace, if you go to the Statue of Liberty, wherever you go, there are people selling trinkets, making money off the the thing. Exactly the same in Ephesus, men gathered around the Artemis Temple trying to make money. And now that the gospel is prevailing, they're losing their business. And Demetrius, the silversmith, is not happy about this. That is the primary theological backdrop to the letter to the Ephesians. The Artemis cult is the primary theological backdrop to the letter to the Ephesians. And what it does is it prompts Paul to make as a point of emphasis from beginning to end the local church. The local church. If you read scholarship on Ephesians, there is a a debate as to what is the main theme in this letter. It is such a rich theological work that scholars can't land on what the main theme is. Many would say it is the cross. Many would say it's the Holy Spirit. Paul talks a lot about the ministry of the Spirit in Ephesians. I think the main thing that rises above all others in Ephesians is the church. And notice just how often Paul uses a temple metaphor. As Paul speaks about the theology of the local church in Ephesians in particular, he employs a temple metaphor. You are being built up as believers into a temple, a living temple, and the message that he's communicating is that it is far greater than that temple over there. You have to understand, Paul's been with these believers for nearly three years, and they're feeling just a little bit of heat now. They understand that what they're doing, the belief system that they have adhered to, is not winning favor with the locals. But Paul's there, the leader, and and Paul's brave, and he'll preach the gospel. And then in Acts 20, the Holy Spirit moves Paul on. So now they come together in the hall of Tyrannus, and Paul is no longer with them. The temple's still outside, and they can hear the crowds going to the temple to worship. They are not going to surrender their message. They're going to hold fast to the gospel by God's grace, but that's going to bring more tension, more friction. Knowing all of this, Paul writes a letter to them, summarizing his teaching to them, and above all other things, he elevates the local church. And he says, do not forget the significance of the institution of which you are a part. Don't bow to the pressure of the Artemis cult. Don't do that. Because the local church is the most glorious institution on planet Earth. 
the implication is so simple that we would believe the same thing. That we would not forsake the assembling of the saints for anything. That we would not forsake coming together as God's people in the local church because we truly, truly believe this is the most glorious institution on planet earth. That every time the church meets, there is nowhere else on earth more significant that we could possibly be found. That even though you may not see it, God is doing work in the local church that cannot be found elsewhere. There are many good things that God gives us. Parachurch ministries and other means of grace from which we benefit. They're good, but none of them is the local church. It is the local church that is God's ordained vehicle by which he advances his plan in redemptive history at this point. Why would you choose to be anywhere else? If you choose to be somewhere else, my only conclusion is that you have not fully understand, understood the significance of the church. Some years ago now, we were living in the northwest of England, and we were part of a local church that was about 15 people. Tiny, tiny town, and the church there was a small group of believers. And we would come together, just like here, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings. On Tuesday night, we'd have a church prayer meeting. And you knew if someone wasn't there, it was pretty easy with 15 people. It was a love in that congregation. If you weren't there on a Sunday morning, two or three people would follow up with you. We noticed you weren't at church on Sunday. Is everything okay? It's how we should behave as believers. Our size doesn't give us an excuse not to do that kind of thing. Now, in such a small church, it can be easy to grow despondent. 15 people every Sunday. We were there only for one year before the Navy moved us on. But many of those 15 had been there for years and years and not seen any growth, any significant growth in that church. It is easy to grow despondent when you can't see the things that God is doing. But that's why we refer to our, our Christianity as faith. We have to exercise trust in the things we can't see. And God teaches us through Ephesians and elsewhere in his word that the church is his chosen instrument by which he will reveal the cosmic triumph of the gospel. You see, these things are linked together. The Ephesians were incredibly well taught. They understood the triumph of the gospel over all authorities and then Paul says, and the way in which that triumph is being made manifest and demonstrated to a watching world is through the local church. So why would you choose ever to be anywhere else? I want to be at church because of the value that God's word places upon it. Last observation for this evening from the book of Acts as it relates to the Ephesians. They knew their responsibility to love. 
They knew their responsibility to love. In just one chapter on from Acts 19, we read of Paul's farewell with the Ephesian elders. He speaks to the elders and he says, the Holy Spirit is bidding me to, to move on. I don't know what awaits me except for persecution. It's incredible to ponder. I don't know what is ahead of me except that I know persecution awaits. And yet he goes. The most reasonable thing to do would be to stay with these men whom he dearly loved, preaching the gospel, to continue teaching them. But he is bound by the Holy Spirit to go and face the persecution that lies ahead. And it is a tearful goodbye. They're crying as they say goodbye to him. They kiss him and they embrace him. They show such love for him. Why do they show such love? In part because he had been so faithful to entrust to them the truths of Scripture. They owed an enormous debt to him for doing that. And they're so thankful. But I would guess that it would also be because he had taught them to love. Paul had taught them to love. And the reason I say that is because when you read through Ephesians, if the church is the primary theme, a secondary sub-theme closely followed is love. Some say the letter to the Ephesians is the letter of love in all of the New Testament. Paul expresses his love for the Ephesians and he encourages them to love. He exhorts the Ephesians towards unity. He boils it right down to the marital unit and teaches us what it is to be a, a godly husband and a godly wife. And he builds it up and up and up to the church and says you have to love one another. Now why this emphasis? The gospel has triumphed over all authority, all occult practices. It is triumphant. The glory of that victory is shown through the local church. But God has placed on us a responsibility to be the church in order that that victory would be made known. You see, God calls us into salvation, a position of immeasurable privilege. When God causes you to be born again, He calls you into a position of unfathomable privilege. It is also a position of incredible responsibility. And if there is one side of the equation that we tend to neglect, it is that second. We happily rejoice and rehearse the truths of the gospel that are ours in Christ, but understand it comes with responsibility. God calls you to action. And that action in his wisdom is the means by which he will show forth his glory to a watching world. So as it relates to the church, perhaps the primary imperative that comes through is that we would love one another. We are called to love one another, to be the church. The church is to be the church so that the cosmic triumph of the gospel would be made known to a watching world. We are to love one another with a self-sacrificing, self-denying, life-laying-down 
Christ-like love. We are to be ready and willing to forgive and to forgive and to forgive one another. When we do life in the way that we are supposed to do life, sharing our very lives with one another, there will be offenses along the way. We're sinners, saved by grace, and we'll offend. And so we head into this community ready and willing to forgive over and over and over and to just keep loving. To love in the way that God loved us. Which is to say that we take the initiative. We don't sit here waiting to be loved. We don't sit here waiting to be recognized and applauded. We take the initiative to walk across the room on a Sunday morning and say, I haven't met you before, but I'd love to get to know you. We take the initiative to step outside of our comfort zone because it is the loving thing to do. You realize the impact that you would have if you don't come here primarily with the attitude of being served. We pray that on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening we would be fed by the ministry that happens here. But you come with the disposition to serve, to lay down your life and to love one another. And when that is the orientation of our hearts, every single member at this church, God's glory will be made known. That's when the church shines. Jesus made promises about the church that nothing would prevail against it. The church will stand until the return of Jesus Christ. But you understand that those promises relate to the universal church. That God would readily take away the light of a local church if it were not found to be doing the job that God has entrusted to us. There are no promises given to God sustaining any particular expression of the church, any local church. We have a responsibility to love one another, to be the church so that God's glory would be made known through us. The implication would be to keep doing what you already are, to do it still more. We stand here just one family as the recipients of much love over the last few weeks and months. I would just encourage you to keep loving, to do it all the more, to pray that God would give you the grace required to lay down your life again for the benefit of others within this church, understanding that it is the very means that God has appointed by which he will be glorified. Let's pray to close. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're excited to embark upon a study in the letter to the Ephesians. Tonight we've examined just a little bit of the 
the backdrop, the circumstances that gave rise to that letter. Father, this evening we praise you for Paul's ministry to the Ephesians, a relatively long ministry, so rich it would seem, that in many ways gave rise to that letter. That we have these six chapters that are so theologically rich, and we can draw from it day after day. Thank you that you allowed Paul that ministry. May we do everything that we can to get Ephesians into our bones. Teach us from this letter. Father, we praise you that at the cross, every authority, every worldly authority is defeated. There is a cosmic triumph declared at the cross. There is no worldview, no system of belief that can compete with the gospel. The Ephesians were taught this and reminded of this in the letter, and we pray that we would know this too. Broaden our understanding of the gospel. Father, that it would not be a small gospel that we treasure in our hearts, but we would understand as much as you would allow us to the far-reaching implications of the cross that extend to the very extremities of the universe. Father, we are grateful that the Ephesians knew something of the importance of the local church. With the Artemis temple in the backdrop, they understood the importance of gathering together of going through the steps that you have prescribed in your words, so simple and yet profoundly significant, because you have ordained them to be significant. Teach us to treasure the local church. Teach us to treasure this local church. May we be present when this church gathers. May we lead others in coming when this church gathers. Though we may not see Sunday by Sunday the work that you're doing, we trust that this is the vehicle by which you're advancing your plan in redemptive history. And Lord, help us to take up the mantle of responsibility to love one another. As you have saved us, so you have called us into this body. And our responsibility is that we would love one another with a self-denying, life-laying-down, Christ-like love. May our love be pure. May it be biblical. May our love reflect the love that we have received in salvation from you. Father, may we be ready to forgive when we're offended. May we be ready to embrace one another. So many people brought together by the gospel who otherwise may not have any reason to share their lives with one another, but your glory is put on display as you bring us together as one body. Help us to be 
the church. Lord, we commit our study of Ephesians to you and ask that you would work out your purposes in us, that you would richly bless us, and that you would show yourself to be the God of the gospel, the God of all glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.